This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Our guest today is Gaurav Dalmia, the chairman of Dalmia Group Holdings, a holding company for business and financial assets. He has invested significantly in private equity and real estate, including sponsoring some top quartile funds. He was chosen as a global leader for tomorrow by the World Economic Forum in 2000. And Gaurav also writes opinion pieces for the Economic Times and the Financial Times of London. Gaurav, thank you so much for joining us today on Knowledge at Wharton. Good morning and thank you. So India's economy, which is, I was hoping we could start with talking about that, it seems to be losing momentum. The Financial Times, which you write for, recently noted that GDP is is in the fifth consecutive quarter of deceleration and has now fallen to a six-year low. So why do you think the economy is faltering so much? You know, there are two ways in which uh, one can look at the economy. One is a macroeconomist's perspective, where you look at what's going on, why it's happening, etc., etc. Other is a businessman's perspective, where you say, this is going on, Less deep dive into what's going on, but a little bit more into where it might be heading and implications for businesses that you're in and so on and so forth. So let me try and address this question from both those uh, perspectives. India has gone through what you would call two big Schumpeterian shocks. So in November of 2016, we had demonetization. And then shortly thereafter, we had the goods and services tax regime. Both of these changed the world significantly for Indian businesses, more so for the SME sector. Now, India's fighting weight, and classical economics will tell you that, is investment rate divided by incremental capital output ratio. Our investment rate has typically been in the range of 30-odd percent, and our incremental capital output ratio is about 4. And both these numbers are actually quite sticky. So a natural fighting weight, therefore, we believe, is 7.5%. So as businesses, that's the kind of growth we underwrite. We hope it'll be more, but over 15 years, 10 years, or any long period, we don't think we can beat that number easily. That requires a lot of alpha generation, a lot of heavy lifting, which I'll come to later. So if you look at the investment rate, that's already slowing down. It's slowing down because bank funding is slowing down because of the banking crisis that is going on. And these are cumulative problems of the last three decades mm. We've, that is being, solved in, has, is being solved in the last couple of years. It'll take a few more years to solve that. So solving five decades problems in one decade is obviously going to have a challenge. Secondly, there's over leverage in the system, in the commodity companies and so on and so forth. So they have their own issues. Third, there is risk aversion in the minds of businessmen because of the changes that are going on. More importantly, I think there is a decline, a secular decline in savings rate. To me, that is more worrying than the cyclical nature of investment and so on and so forth. So if you look at it, in 2012, our savings rate was about 23.3% for households. has gone down in 2018 to 17.5% or slightly under that. Now, this secular decline in savings rate will ultimately feed into lower investment rate and therefore it will subdue economic growth and we've got to be able to change that. Now, people often say, how did China grow Mm. at 10% plus for all this time? Now, China's savings rate, people forget, was 40% plus. Mm. 
So why is India's saving rate coming down? Uh, you know, it's cultural. It's the consumer. It's the consumerism uh, that is going on. It was lower than China to begin with because it was just cultural, and then it's coming down because of consumerism. Mm-hmm. Now, rural distress is adding to this. Uh, consumer spend is also low because of the same forces, and FDI will make up for some of this investment partially. The decline in investment, local investment, partially, but it won't really change the game by a lot. So these are the kinds of challenges that are going on. But you know, I'm a big believer in what historian uh, Edward Carr said. And he said, you have to accept that history is a broken line. Mm-hmm. So there'll be breaks in this trend, but the long-term trend, I think, is still there, mm-hmm. and I still uh, uh, believe in. Right. Now, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the points you did because you you highlighted two or three of the. Uh, critical problem areas that often, you know, are, are, are come to mind when one thinks of what's going on in the Indian economy. So on the problems that India faces, one is a lack of jobs for young people. The second is, as you correctly said, the fall in consumption. And the, there is the income squeeze for uh, rural areas. Now, uh, what do you think needs to be done to get the economy back on track, especially along these three dimensions? Well, as a businessman, I can tell you our single biggest challenge in the economy is job creation. Mm. Now, the numbers that we see, and at least the numbers we subscribe to, is that we need about a million jobs a month, net job creation in India. Now, we're nowhere near that. So in the long term, or even in the medium term, that's going to be a big problem if you don't generate enough jobs in our country. Now, let's go a little bit more granular. I have some data here. If you look at youth, which is 15 to 24 years of age, and their participation in the labor force, India's labor force participation of youth is 26-odd percent, compared to China's of 57 percent, Indonesia 47 percent, even Brazil at 40 percent. So in this sub-segment, our labor force participation is very, very low. You look at women, India's is about uh, uh, 24 percent. Bangladesh is 36 percent. Malaysia is over 50 percent. Uh, Vietnam, which is a real outlier, is 73%. Mm. So hidden below the aggregate jobs data are even more worrying uh, trends. Now, really, the issue is the rural squeeze. Agricultural income has plateaued because we've been trying to control inflation. Not enough non-agricultural jobs are being generated at the same time. So that's a challenge. Uh, Inflation, which has actually been India's bane, if you look at the last 15 years, we've been able to control that. So that's the good news. I believe that in the short term, India's economic vitality is determined by oil and monsoons. In the long term, it's determined by demographics and geography. So let's look at the short term. Oil has been reasonably okay. There are no oil shocks to derail our economy. Monsoons this year have been pretty good. Okay, So in the near term, there is no big macro shock of that type. In the long term, our demographics are pretty decent. We have working age population coming in. We have unemployment problems, but it's going to put India in the right side. And we have a good coastline. So our geography is pretty good, even though our population density is very high. So our geography is a net friend, I think, of ours. If you extrapolate this demographics, if you extrapolate all of this, I think for think of the operating leverage of a consumer. 
So let's assume you make $100 mm. in salary, right? And nominal wage growth in India for aggregate is about 9%. Mm. Take away 4% in inflation. So real wage growth in India is about 5%. So if you take 5% wage growth, and let's, your, let's say your income was $100, and $80 was going on day-to-day -day necessities, rent or mortgage, food, clothing, etc., and you have $20 of disposable income, with a $5 growth, you're actually getting a 25% disposable income growth. So you have millions of Indians who have been crossing the threshold mm. where nominal incomes will grow at 9%, real incomes are growing at 5%, but disposable incomes have been growing at 20%, 25%, which is why mature industries in Western markets, automotive as an example and so on, were growing very rapidly. Mm. Now, the counter to this is a point of view which I partially subscribe to is that most of India's consumption was based on a very small foundation. Mm -hmm. It was based on demand, this operating leverage that I was just talking about, mm -hmm. of only about 150 million people. Mm -hmm. Whereas to truly create a robust economy, mm -hmm. you need this base to be 400 million people. Mm -hmm. So the next 2 million have not yet been added mm -hmm. in this consumer economy mm -hmm. the way it ought to have been. So that mm -hmm. makes India uh, somewhat vulnerable. But let's look at what's been going on, okay? So we've just finished the Shera season, which is the big holiday buying season. Amazon and Flipkart, which are the two big e-commerce websites, reported online sales of $2.5 billion during this period, the holiday period, okay? which is a very good number. And when you look at the slow economy, you have to look at these uh, good pieces of news as well. If you look at Zomato, the food delivery company, in the last year, it's gone at 3x. Now, again, you can say this is a niche business, but it's very indicative to me. If you look at a health insurance company called Max Bupa, and you measure their revenue in terms of gross written premium, their gross written premium over 2014 to 19, aggregate growth was 25% per year. Mm. Okay. So you have all these trends that are playing out in a so-called uh, worrying economic scenario. If you again believe this is niche, let's go even more macro. So HDFC is the largest mortgage provider in India. And if you look at HDFC's mortgage data, it has been growing at 23.5% over the last five years. Mm -hmm. okay. So I am not buying the fact there's only bad news. I think there is bad news, but there are pockets of good news. So I would call it uh, mixed news. Now we have to restart the mood, really. You have to restart the investment cycle, which means bring real interest rates down, restart uh, uh, a consumer boom, and so on and so forth. And that requires a lot of effort and energy. Well, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned some of the bright points of the economy. Uh, and I'm, I'm, that, that, that I agree with you that the picture is more mixed and more balanced than sometimes one perceives. But uh, at the same time, uh, to deal with some of the issues you mentioned of increasing the labor force participation rate or stimulating the rural economy, uh, a, a, a vibrant manufacturing sec sector is very essential to, to achieve some of those goals. And that seems to be in, in particularly difficult shape. Now, especially if you consider the auto sector, uh, why, why did the auto sector get into so much trouble and what can be done now? And, you know, I wonder if there are any lessons from the kind of government bailouts that were necessary here in the U.S. in the aftermath of the Great Recession. Uh, do you think such a, uh, such a bailout is required for the auto sector in India? Well, let me start with the manufacturing sector in general. 
So manufacturing is about 15% of GDP in India. And that was the same 10 years ago. And the government at that time had this ambition that we will move it from 15% of GDP to 25% of GDP or some larger number. And actually that hasn't happened for a whole bunch of reasons. Compare this again to China. China's manufacturing as a percentage of GDP is almost twice of India's, 29% versus 15%. Indonesia is 20%. Malaysia is 22 Brazil, which has a lot of geographic obstacles because of the nature of its economy and its geography, is at 10%. So we should not compare ourselves to Brazil, but more to Indonesia's and the China's of the world. Auto is almost 45% of manufacturing. Auto, is, auto and auto-related businesses mm. are almost 7% of India's GDP. So auto is a very big sector and a very important sector and a proxy on what's going on, what's right and what's wrong in Indian manufacturing. Now, traditionally, auto was growing at about 12% because of this so-called operating leverage of the consumer that I was talking about earlier. But auto was sitting behind tariffs of 125%. So import duties for Honda Accord to Honda Accord comparison. right? So it wasn't the most efficient sector in India, even though it had exports, right, about 15 odd billion dollars of auto exports and so on and so forth, it wasn't the most efficient sector. Now, a couple of forces have come to play why auto sector is slowing. One, if you believe that India's economic boom was based on this small base of 150 million people, one can argue that's saturating. And the next level, the next 150 or 200 million people aren't really buying autos or are not a part of the consumer economy in a big way. So there's a natural plateauing and it's happening faster than we thought. So that's one argument. Second is almost two-thirds of the automotive sector products are financed. The whole NBFC and financial crisis that is going on, right? there's a big asset liability mismatch, as holding back lending. So that is, on a marginal basis, on an incremental basis, is pulling back demand. Thirdly, you're adding some unique things such as insurance, road tax increases, et cetera, et cetera. So the consumer wallet is getting a bit stretched. So these are the factors, I think, that are affecting the auto uh, sector. Now, let's come back from auto to general manufacturing. One has to question whether India's manufacturing sector is very, very competitive or it's not. I think, I think in pockets it is. But in large parts, it's not because of high real interest rates. In, in India, real interest rates are about 5%. Real. Nominal are about, again, 9 Okay, It's because of uh, infrastructure and weaknesses in infrastructure and therefore logistics. Uh, our working capital cycles in India have been longer than working capital cycles for peer groups of those industries in other markets, even Thailand or Indonesia. And you really need a command economy of China type of mindset to clean some of these problems, which India is doing, but it's slower than we thought. Now, if you look at education, the investments Bangladesh and Vietnam made in education almost 15 years ago are paying off today. Mm. India's education is lagging, even what has happened in Bangladesh and Vietnam and so on and so forth. So that is another cause why Indian manufacturing productivity Uh, labor productivity, is not as good as it ought to be. Now, let me wear a private equity hat and not a businessman hat for a minute. If you look at where most private equity guys tend to invest and make money, manufacturing is actually a very small portion, Mm -hmm. right? So to the extent money votes, it's been voting for a while. Mm. 
a lot of that is going into financial services, technology, IT-related services, and so on and so forth. And you've got to ask, why uh, is private equity not coming big time uh, into manufacturing? And this verdict is not quite clear, but I'm optimistic that Indian manufacturing will get more productive, more efficient over the next decade. I'd, I'd like to go a little deeper into private equity in a bit, but I have one other question before that. Uh, so la just last month in September, uh, the government uh, of India announced a $20 billion tax cut. And though, of course, the stock market went up following that announcement, some economists have said that such solutions will not solve India's biggest economic problems. And as you mentioned, one of the big, big issues seems to be how do you get the next 100 to 150 million more people uh, into the consumer market and supporting the consumer economy to, to stimulate demand? So, so I wonder if you could give me your analysis of that. Do you, do you think these kinds of solutions are helpful? And if not, what can be done to bring the next 150 million people into the consumer economy? Mm -hmm. Clearly, some of these tactical solutions work. But I think the benefits of these are more limited than we think. Yeah. So if you, there was a big euphoria right. about this tax cut. Stock market went up, but it's corrected uh, since then in the last couple of weeks. So, you know, it depends on what our aspirations are. Is our aspiration 7, 7.5% economic growth, which is our natural fighting weight? Mm -hmm. Is our aspiration 10% economic growth, which is emulating what China did, and mm -hmm. so on and so forth? And the solutions for these two paths may be different. Mm -hmm. So let's stay with 7%, 7.5% for a minute. For that, I think there are plenty of low-lying fruit. You have to remove the hygiene factors, mm -hmm. such as the financial sector liquidity issues, the asset liability mismatch that is going on in the financial sector. You've got to remove that. And relatively speaking, that's easier to do as compared to what you might want to do for 10% growth. You've got to plug the delays in the GST system, right? Working capital for SMEs has just bloated. Okay. You've got to be able to rectify agricultural support prices to revive the rural economy. Okay. You've got to lower interest rates. We've got amongst the highest uh, real interest rates in the world. So these are, relatively speaking, tactical things that need to be done, mm. right? And one can find solutions, governments working towards all of this, right? There is this despondency in India, and Arvind Adhika uh, captures it very well. And he said, in the old days, the dilemma was that we were scared of the corrupt politician. These days, we are scared of the honest politician. <laughs> so... It's become yeah. very ideological, the political environment today. Yeah. Okay. And that's creating some amount of scare for people to speak out. Mm -hmm. okay. Now, let's come to see what do we need to do to get to 10% growth. Now, this will require an Olympic tribe regimen and training. It will not happen with incrementalism. So, for example, we will need more FTAs. Mm -hmm. And in order to do more FTAs, we'll have to craft those FTAs to our advantage, which means you want to be an early person in crafting of those FTAs. You can't just be a recipient of uh, FTAs from other countries. Okay, Infra spend has to go up in a big way. Mm. Okay, Our investment in education and healthcare, if you want to improve productivity of labor, mm. has to go up in a big way. And Vietnam and Bangladesh, as I was mentioning, have shown the path. We have to strengthen institutions. Now, to me, this is a very big Factor. Economists will tell you this all the time, but as a businessman, let me tell you, what do we encounter with institutions? So regulators in India often play catch-up with the real world. So it's shocking that in India, the airline industry started right, by 
air taxis and we beat the system, right? And that's how the private airline industry started. The regulator was just playing catch up. Decisions often get made by Indian institutions in the face of a crisis. So when there's a crisis, we'll make a big, bold decision. So we tend not to preempt many decisions. So these are again, this is again an institutional weakness. Third, India's story is of individual brilliance, right? Even though the institutions may be weak. So a great police officer will do a great job. A great bureaucrat will do a great job. But that doesn't make our institutions that robust. And we put so many conflicting demands on our institutions. So, for example, one of the reasons why this big telecom scam happened a decade ago, we were trying to figure out whether we should price spectrum cheaply or coal cheaply to contain inflation. But yet we were giving them out, right, to friends and family which is what created the problem. So there was a good motive to begin with, but that motive got lost. And these conflicting demands institutions can't handle. So you've got to be very uh, singular and purposeful in, in what to do. Now, let's look at the China experience. So in the mid-70s, uh, Deng Xiaoping famously said, to get rich is glorious. In very few parts of the world today, can a political leader go out and say, to get rich is glorious. And he was not making a vision statement. He was accurately reading the mood of his countrymen. Right? Today, I don't think in India a leader can really go and say that. People will think he's pro-rich mm. and so on and so forth. If we think this is crass, we're not going to grow at 10%. Mm. If we think this is what we all need as a society, mm. we have a shot at growing at 10%. Mm. So we've got to find our to get rich is glorious moment mm. in India or in any other country for that matter, mm. but certainly in India. Second, this kind of 10% growth will be a long gestation period mm. thing. It's not going to happen in one election cycle. It'll go through many election cycles, which requires its own stamina and political will. Thirdly, it is not just a government which has to deliver that. Businesses, society as a whole has to be able to deliver that. So you need to have judicial reform. You've got to have business act in a certain way and so on and so forth. So it's a more complex thing which the whole country really has to be uh, uh, ready for. So I would say on the whole, if we make hard decisions, there's no reason why we can't really grow at uh, 10%. Given everything you've said uh, and all the challenges you've described, uh, how do you look at poverty and inequality in India? You know, through our philanthropic activities, we see poverty up close. We do a lot of work in rural water, in girls' education, and so on and so forth. And I believe we need to do more to remove poverty, not because things are very bad. Okay, India has taken out a lot of people from poverty, just like China has. But because there's a lot of opportunity to do more. Mm. Things are better, but we could be a lot better. Mm. Right? So it's a positive case, not a negative uh, uh, case. Now, if you, I, I come from the Hans Rosling school of thought. I don't know if you've read his book, Factfulness, but I think every policy analyst needs to read Factfulness. And he's a Swedish doctor. He's also a public policy expert. And his basic point is that we miss the small steps in progress. And these small steps are cumulative. And that's what produces good results. So if you look at, Infant, inf, infant mortality rate as a proxy for India. 
1990, there were 120 deaths for 1,000 people, 1,000 uh, newborns. In 2016, it had gone to 39.4. Hmm. Okay. So that's a big uh, uh, improvement. Okay. Mark Twain said, a pessimist before 48 knows too much and an optimist after 48 knows too little. <laughs> so I'm an optimist, but because optimism is sometimes misunderstood, I'll call myself a possibilist. So we have to think of the world in terms of probabilities, what we could do. If we did this, this is a high probability event rather than this will happen or it won't work. And again, if you look at World Bank data between 1990 and 2013, India has taken out 170 million people out of poverty. Okay. And political entrepreneurship in India works. I'll give you an example. So take two states. One is the state of Uttar Pradesh in northern India and other is Andhra Pradesh. Mm. Okay. Telangana and Andhra combined uh in the old days in the early 90s poverty rate in uttar pradesh was 48% which means 48% of people were below the poverty line as mm. defined mm. andhra pradesh 44% of the people were below the poverty line by 2010 okay in 20 years in uttar pradesh it had gone down from 48% to 29% and in andhra it had gone down from 44% to 9% mm. that's the power of political entrepreneurship and i think that really works it's interesting now from the macro view i wonder if we could drill down a little into some a couple of specific sectors so you have significant investments in residential real estate uh, and there have been media reports about hundreds of thousands of housing units that have been sold but which property developers have not been able to complete uh, what do you think needs to be done to deal with these kinds of problems See, first of all, real estate is a very big sector. Mm. It's amongst the largest sectors globally in any economy, including in India. And therefore, it's a very significant sector. McKinsey had a study recently, which actually the first draft of it just came out, that construction needs to move from 4.7% of GDP to 12.5% of GDP if India has to really reach its true potential. So we haven't even reached what we ought to, and still it's a big sector. If you look at Asian experience, wealth creation in real estate in Thailand, Indonesia, Japan, China, real estate has been a very big contributor mm. of wealth. Okay. Now, unfortunately, real estate is a very inefficient sector. So let's look at it. It's covered by local regulations. Right? So you have to deal with a lot of uh, local stuff. It is not an easy sector to play in. So if you look at fixed price contracts in developed markets you can give out a fixed price contract and de-risk yourself as a developer in countries like india you can't give a fixed price contract because most contractors don't have the balance sheets to offer a guaranteed price contract and therefore you are taking that risk on yourself secondly if you look at value added and if you were to break up the whole real estate cycle into three which means land consolidation licensing and construction and development bulk of the value add comes from land consolidation and licensing which are inevitably political in nature mm. and the pure science of it which is the development is a 15% irr business mm. Mm. okay mm. so your returns are very skewed towards mm. things mm. that are not really very business like so it even mm. attracts the wrong kind of people mm. right now we are cleansing the sins again of a decade like in the banking sector people used to take money from customers for project a because there was really no regulator and then divert that money into project b mm. 
And if project B got stuck, inevitably project A got stuck as well. Mm. So it became like a house of cards. Right? Now, unfortunately, a lot of this has been funded by high yield debt. Mm. So you have all these problems in the industry and you add to that high yield debt. So you've mm. actually amplified the problem. You've actually pushed the can down the road. Right. 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 So on one end, customer trust in developers is broken because deliveries have been very weak because they've been overambitious. They're diverting money from projects to new projects rather than development. Mm. Secondly, there's now pressure from high yield debt and there's a cash crunch. Mm. Mm. And I think on a selective basis, you can still invest in real estate and we are continuing to do that Mm. and complete projects. As a society, I think the regulators will have to step in Right, create a bad bank, bad bank type of environment. Mm. Take away some assets, mm. right, mm. and cleanse them and sell them. Mm. It won't. You can't leave it to the developers because the stakes of the consumers in this case mm. are, are way too high. Mm. Now, if you look at different markets like, such as Delhi, you may have two to three years worth of inventory. Mm. If you look at Central Mumbai, I am told uh, you may have seven to eight years worth of inventory. If you look at suburban Mumbai, Thane and so on and so forth, projects are actually doing quite well. So at different price points, the experience of the real estate sector may be very different because demand supply is very different. So as, as you were speaking, at some point I almost felt like it seemed a little bit like a Ponzi scheme. And I was wondering if you, you see any evidence of outright fraud involved in any of these instances or it's just bad economics. I would say in some cases and let's say 15% of the cases, they may be fraud. 15% seems pretty high. In majority of the cases, Mm. it is overambition. I see. Okay. But unfortunately, it's very difficult to distinguish where there was fraud and where there's overambition. But I subscribe to the fact that if you can selectively go after people who were just overambitious, the projects are good, everything else is good, and you don't put in high-yield money, but put in preference equity or equity, pure equity, right? And give them the runway to perform. I think there is a solution. So, uh, turning now to what you were saying earlier about private equity, uh, how do you view that market in India today? Where do you see the most promising opportunities and where would you invest in today's business environment in India? So let's start with private equity. So private equity wave really started in India with the tech boom of 2000. Yeah. That is when most of the guys started coming in. Okay. 2002 to 2006 was a big bull run in India. So a lot of private equity guys actually made a lot of money in their first phase uh, uh, when they came in. Some of the best uh, known private equity firms in India, which are domestic, such as True North or Chris Capital, were built uh, in this period. International players, whether it was Carlisle, Blackstone, KKR, etc., Sequoia also, started coming in after that. Today, the industry is very segmented. Mm. Okay. There's five or six different segments. So, for example, control deals. It is not everybody's gig to be able to do control deals. Mm. People like Blackstone or True North focus on it, and they've done a phenomenal job. True North in the last decade has invested more than $2 billion mm. just in control mm. transactions. Mm. Okay. Growth capital is a mm. second segment. You have a multitude mm. of players in that. 
the most recent spectacular success is a fund called Kedara, for example. But you have Warburg Pinkers, you have all sorts of people playing in that. Technology VC, again, is a specialized business. Sequoias and the light speeds of the world are in India, mm. right? And they're backing the unicorns. Mm. Okay, So that's a third niche where not everyone can play. Uh, some of the hedge funds, people like Carlyle, Chris Capital, are doing a lot of pipe deals, which is a private investment in public equities. So you're taking long-term positions through private placements in listed companies. Mm. Okay. That's, again, a separate uh, segment. To hedge against inflation, but to get some amount of fixed income, a lot of people are doing infra-annuities, mm. such as Brookfield and, and so on and so forth. And then there's traditional high-yield Apollo is a high-yield leader in Europe or America. Uh, uh, they are doing the same in India. Goldman is doing high-yield mm. in India. So these different segments uh, have evolved. Now, there are three categories of private equity investors in India. Uh, foreigners, Indian institutional-sponsored, and Indian entrepreneurial. Mm. The foreigners have done well. The Indian entrepreneurial ones have done well. The Indian institutional ones really have not done that well for various reasons. They've not been able to institutionalize the talent pool. The minute there is uh, first fund success, the key teams leave and they start on their own and so on and so forth. But overall, as an asset class, private equity has actually done very well. Hmm. Now, there are lessons for all of us. One, people who made local decisions have done better than people who've tended to make decisions in London or New York. Hmm. Okay. The first example of this was Warburg Pincus. Right. They opened shop in India. They had local decision-making and so on and so forth. Uh, unlike developed markets, most of the private equity business in India is growth capital. Mm. It's not leveraged buyouts of a cash cow business. Mm. And therefore, your investment timelines are a little bit longer mm. than uh, you know what people are used to in more developed markets. So you have to be prepared for it. Third, a lot of mistakes have been made where people have started focusing on assets rather than management. Asset may be a good brand, mm. a good location for a plant, or whatever it is. Mm. Mm. Right? And that's been a big uh, problem for private equity. Fourth, everybody in India speaks about adding value to their portfolio companies. I would say less than 25% of the private equity shops are able to bring value. Mm. Right? But those who do, I think, can have a USP. Fifth, people have to marry top-down and bottoms-up view to investing, right? A top-down view may be South and Western India are growing faster than North and Eastern India. So if you're an insurance company, let's focus on South and West. That's a top-down view. A bottoms-up view may be what's your return on capital employed, what's, how are you creating a barrier to entry, et cetera, et cetera. And I think many private equity in investors get seduced by the top-down view and don't pay enough attention to the bottoms-up view, which then hurts uh, returns. And lastly, it's not a financial modeling business. Mm. It's really a business growth type of business in India. So people mm. who are just doing financial modeling, they inevitably are disappointed because the numbers don't play out. Right. You know, there's a dispersion of returns. So mm. your median returns are not that attractive. But if you look at people in the top quartile, I think people will salivate. I think Blackstone's best deals in the world today are exits that are happening out of India. So you've got to try not to be a median player where you're just mimicking the index and meeting the index by a very small amount, but by actually uh, uh, creating alpha. So in terms of our own uh, investments, 
we tend to divide the world into five or six different buckets. Mm. One, we do public markets. Okay. We think public markets and private equity are interchangeable on a relative value basis. Mm. We don't have a top-down asset allocation. Mm. History shows Indian returns have been about 10% in dollars over decades. The whole hedge fund industry in the US was actually built on this 10% return. Mm. In India, by passive investing in the stock market index, you can get that kind of return. So we play public markets. We play uh, uh, private equity. Just stay with the public markets for a second. If you look at any metric today, prices have corrected. Your price to earnings ratio, EV to EBITDA, mm. whatever metric you use, is actually on a low. There are many companies that ha uh, 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 that are showing their operating leverage playing out, mm. right? Because the business is going up, the fixed costs are getting amortized over a longer or, or a bigger base, and so on and so forth. A lot of companies which made capex a few years ago, that mm. capital work in progress, and the results of that capex are coming now. Mm. So mm. there may be a lot of opportunities just in uh, public markets, and similarly in private equity. You know. Thomas Russo is a well-known investor here in the U.S. And he invests only in uh, consumer companies. And I think his Berkshire investment is worth about $2 billion from his mm -hmm. fund. And he has a statement which is, be a farmer, not a hunter. Mm -hmm. Now, this statement really applies well to India. Mm -hmm. People who've tried to hunt in India have actually not done very well. But people who've tried to do farming in India, in that sense, have tended to do a lot better. Then we invest in structured credit. We do a lot of real estate-related structured credit. We are looking and have done a few things in distressed. Okay. We think in the next five to seven years, this will be a great play. The problem with distressed is that the siren song is so attractive, it will seduce a lot of people, and then they're going to go away hurt because it's a new field. People don't know exactly what to do mm. and so on and so forth. But on a macro basis, I think it's a, it's a great play. Then again, I spoke about annuities and so on and so forth. So we tend to play mostly in public markets and structured credit. And we do early stage. We like to build businesses. Now, I'll make two comments. So Warren Buffett said, you know, why can't people copy him? Because people don't want to get rich slow. Right? So it's difficult to copy him. Right? So, but if you think you have a 15-year view, right, you can do things which are very sensible, yet very attractive financially. And secondly, if you look at the Forbes billionaires, they all come from equity-related businesses. Mm -hmm. They've all created wealth out of building businesses. Right? So just last year, the Forbes uh, list just came out a couple of days ago. Okay? Six new people have been added mm -hmm. in the Forbes 100 in India. It's in a benign environment. I remember four, two come from consumer, mm -hmm. one comes from pharma, and one comes from education tech. Mm. Okay, I can't remember what the, where the other two come from. Mm. So I'm saying an equity-linked mindset mm. is actually a very good way uh, to play India. Now, you, you mentioned earlier that manufacturing is one sector that private equity doesn't really engage in much. And so if I were to ask you, what are the biggest risks that you see as a private equity investor? And what are, are there any areas that you try to keep away from? What would those be? 
See, we tend to be very bottoms up. We've concentrated within consumer and consumer proxies such as logistics and so on and so forth. We've done a whole bunch of financials, consumer-related financials, SME-related financials. We've stayed away from wholesale uh, uh, financials just because levered play on wholesale lending in India has not been that attractive. Then we've played annuities to keep ourselves safe. We're really an equity investor at heart, mm. which tries to sometimes play non-equity mm. to keep risks low. We are not a lender at heart. Mm. We are not a, a, a fixed income uh, mm. player at heart. And I think the long-term play on a growing economy like India is really equity. Mm. And, you know, uh, I think it's a Rothschild saying, which said says, uh, buy to the sound of gunshots and sell to the sound of violence. Mm. So today, to the extent we hear the gunshots, mm. it may actually be a right time to buy to the sound of gunshots. Right. I'd like to end with uh, two or three questions based on your own personal leadership journey. Uh, Gaurav, you come from one of the really well-known business families in India, uh, Dalmia family. And I wonder, when you think back on your own leadership journey, what are some of the most enduring lessons that you have learned from your family at a young age that have stayed with you over time? Well, I'll tell you, uh, my, my grandfather moved from a small town called Chirava to Delhi to do business. That's akin to me moving from Delhi to San Francisco to do business today. Right? And these are the kinds of risks people took. And at that time... People were not rough-elbowed, right? Everyone would work together, they would cooperate, and so on and so forth. So the lessons we've learned are there's enough for everyone, first of all. Secondly, it's up to you to be able to make your future relocate from Chirava to Delhi or from Delhi to San Francisco. And really, you are your own boss in that sense. It's, you know. Now, in terms of leadership, you know, what we've learned is also a function of our own age and our own evolution. Mm. So when I was young, I thought talent and domain knowledge would, would, would take me forward. And at that age, it was probably correct. Mm. Right? Few years passed by and so on and so forth. And then I say, okay, building a team mm. is now the new game, right? Your talent and your domain knowledge, that's good enough, but that's gone. Now let's go to the next variable and so on and so forth. So we kept moving up the curve. The next was, do we have strategic insight? Can we stay one step ahead of the curve? Mm. Right. The next was, can we create stretch goals for our own organizations? Right. We were in a capital-intensive business. Ultimately, we found, and that's the level we have reached today, which is our next leadership challenge, and Jim Collins actually phrases this well. He said, the ultimate test of leadership is, do you have humility and indomitable will? Who knows? Mm -hmm. That's where we are at today. Now, just today, actually, I was reading in the FT this morning. Uh, somebody, I can't remember the name of the uh, writer, but he said, what would he do if he gave a Nobel Prize in management? Mm -hmm. okay. And he says, you need two things. You need plumbing and poetry. Plumbing means you need organization skills and poetry means you need the vision. So it kind of resonated with me this morning when I was... <laughs> Uh, uh, reading that. You know, Buffett says that he is a better investor because he's also a businessman. Mm -hmm. He's a better businessman because he's also an investor. Mm -hmm. Now, we in some ways are trying to emulate that. Now, we're keeping our fingers crossed 
we don't do a 360 degree review okay we are not evolved enough for that but i don't know what people might say if we actually did a 360 uh, degree review i just end by a philosophical point on uh, uh, our own journey so if you read the old mahabharat text the, there was a guru called dronacharya and he had all these students who were the kings and his favorite student was yudhishthir and he was teaching all these princes uh, values and he said never lie and the princes hear it a few weeks later he's questioning the senior most the oldest brother yudhishthir and he says remember i told you don't lie did you understand and yudhishthir says no so dronacharya looks at him and says so simple don't lie this carries on three or four iterations and yudhishthir says no i've not learnt it so dronacharya ex- ultimately is exasperated and says but why haven't you learnt it and he says well i've never had the chance to try i've never been tempted to lie yet so how do i know that you don't have to lie <laughs> only when i'm tempted and i don't lie that's when i will know so i think this leadership journey evolves as we get challenged in life right. and we are in that process uh if you were to reflect over the course of your career uh what do you think is the biggest leadership challenge you have ever faced how did you deal with it and what did you learn from it well i'll tell you i'm a third generation businessman so the odds for people like us are actually against us so people say shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations right there's another saying actually uh, more pertinent to kings but could be applicable to business families also it says if you can keep your head on your shoulders for three generations you'll build an empire but if you can build uh, keep your head on your shoulders for five generations you'll actually build a dynasty mm. right About 15 years ago, I was having lunch with a friend. His name is Anshu Jain. He used to be CEO of Deutsche Bank. And he made a very simple observation. He says, Gaurav, the problem with you guys, the us lot, business people, is that if you underperform to your potential, you'll still do okay. So we look, I, I heard it and I said, I don't want to just do okay. I want to do better than okay. So we've had to evolve ourselves over the last 20, 25 years. So when I came into business, operating skills... were the key determinant of success is your quality good is your brand and distribution good etc etc very quickly those became redundant because everybody had it then we had to move to strategy can you create barriers to entry are you leveraging enough taking advantage of the financial markets and so on and so forth and in 15 years that went away too the next game which is our current game is culture can we move fast enough can we create a cohesive team in a turbulent world and so on and so forth so we've had to learn and unlearn a lot of these things so to me that would be the greatest uh, challenge just staying uh, in the game well i have one last question for you gaurav and that is uh, how do you define success you know success if i may use the phrase we meet off and on so success is a friend you meet him off and on which means sometimes we are successful sometimes we are not but we know that he's a good friend and he's always around even if you're not successful in a particular endeavor you know your friend success is still around he'll meet you again sometime soon you know so that's the philosophical approach uh, we take to success now you can break this up into many parts one is material right 
whether it's money or market share, right? That's the material aspect of success. You've got to be able to crack a certain level. Second, it is to the extent you believe character is destiny, it's character. Third, I think success is a dancing spirit. So somebody tweeted the other day, I've got it written over here, I don't know where the limits are, but I would like to go there. So if you have a dancing spirit, you will test your limits, you will exceed hopefully your limits, right? And that is success to me. If you can't even take that chance, then you're not successful. Fourth, hopefully you're self-actualizing, you're meeting your higher order needs, you know, and that's success. Fifth, I think a peer group evaluation is success. So the Nobel Prize is given through peer review. Right? So you have to be able to test yourself through your peers and say, what do you think? And lastly, I think I will quote Buffett again. He said, somebody asked him, uh, what is success? And he said, well, people you care about, if they love you back, then you're successful. So I think this is the ultimate test. And on this one, I'll do well. I don't know about the others. <laughs> Gaurav, thank you so much for speaking with Knowledge at Wharton. It's such a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.